0: Welcome to the CMU Now Specialization Podcast. I'm Kelsey Coleman with my co-host Caitlin Birdsall and we're joined today by Colorado Macy University President-elect John Marshall and CMU Associate Professor of
1: Psychology Dr. Nikki Jones. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to be here today to be able to participate in this conversation, which I think is a really important one. And hopefully our listeners will enjoy getting to hear all that we're going to talk about today. So I think we've all read headlines about the realities of sexual assaults on college campuses and the need for there to be a continuous conversation that's happening and programming that's developed. Um, and so I kind of want to jump right in and start with you, Dr. Jones, Of if you could tell us a little bit about your background and then what role you are playing in the conversation that we're talking about today.
2: Well, first off, thank you for having us. I think this is a really important subject that um, both John and I would like to kind of get out there and really promote all that we're doing in this area. So I just appreciate you taking the time to talk with us on this issue. Um, So, my background is I'm a counseling psychologist. I have been doing counseling either at the master's level or the doctoral level since 2004. And so I've had a lot of opportunity to work with individuals who have experienced um, sexual assault and trauma. Currently, um, in addition to my role as an associate professor here, I have a side practice working with women. Um, and so a number of them have experienced assaults and, and we're dealing with the aftermath of that. So in my own clinical work, this has just been an area of interest for me. I've, I've done a lot of outreach on college campuses around assault and, and these issues too. And then I also teach amongst a number of my classes, I teach the psychology of women class and human sexuality class. And so both of those classes also link. To really giving me a lot of um, information and research base into this area as well, and throughout my years teaching these classes here on campus, I've had I've heard unfortunately a number of discussions and um, within my classes and amongst my students about their experiences. And so back in, um, I believe it was 2013, I was teaching a human sexuality class, and a couple of my students in that class prompted and asked um, me if I'd be the advisor for the Sexual Assault Prevention Club, which they wanted to start at the time. And so that's really how I got into this work around maybe programming on campus around this issue specifically. Great. And I think
1: that's, you know, really interesting that you said it's the students who are the ones that came to you wanting to start it. I mean, I think that's something that I love about CMU and our students is that Mm -hmm. they're always the ones that are willing to put themselves out there to, I think, take a stand for what's important for them to get involved. And so I'm glad to hear that that's where it actually started. Absolutely. Me too. Let's talk about hookup culture for
0: a second. You both read the book American Hookup by Lisa Wade. It talks about a new sexual culture on campus. Can you kind of talk about that? Not just in broad terms or or not just specifically um, on the surface level, but like what is happening here on campus with that hookup culture? And is it common? Is this something that um, we're seeing across the country?
3: Yeah, I think, um, you know, Dr. Wade's book is, is fascinating. And I would say to those of you uh, listening have it's worth reading you you probably do need to prepare yourself there's some um, there's some kind of alarming elements to it but you know in some regards college is the same as it has always been where young adults are coming to find themselves learn new freedoms, um, experience adulthood and that includes in in uh, sexual agency and so that part of college is not changed. Part of what has though is expectation and sort of, what I think Dr. Jones has helped me better understand as a subculture within um, some of the way that these students behave, one of the things that we know is true is that it is almost always tied to alcohol and or some other drugs, um, but it's also highly local, it's highly campus specific. And um, so it's this really interesting tapestry of um, media and and broad sort of world and national culture. But then there's also these really uh, granular specific local mores and um, cultural dynamics. And so, you know, in my role prior to um, the last year, I've, of course, been in the student services realm for the last decade and a half. And so I've seen this, you know, Dr. Jones experiences it both in a um, clinical setting and an academic setting. And I've experienced it on the more the student life and the conduct and um, and some of those sort of elements. And so I think between the two of us, we've seen, I would say what, Nikki, the unvarnished elements of, of this in, in a lot of ways, right? Um, and maybe from different perspectives, but I think holistically, we've seen a lot of the kind of realities of how this plays out. And so where it brings us to is what is it as a campus that we want? What do we want as a culture? What do we want as norms? What is the expectation when all of us come here, right? So whether we're an administrator, a staff person, a professor, a student, what are our expectations when we get here? And this is what I think, you know, I've so appreciated about the conversation Dr. Jones and I have been having over the last several years is really having those uncomfortable and and sometimes terse conversations about well, how do we get to this place of a common goal where um, respect and civility and you know, sort of kind human behavior to one another, and respectful dialogue, and openness, and some of these values that I think many of us share. Um, but it's complicated, and it's messy, and it's it's not an easy conversation.
2: I would like to add to what you were saying because that you used the term subpopulation. I think really nicely. And there's this misperception that hookup culture means. It's a culture-wide, and it really is a subculture on a Mm -hmm. campus. Mm -hmm. Not everyone's um, engaging in hookup culture, so I think Lisa Wade uh, kind of found it's around 30% or so of people actually engage in this, and it's for a variety of reasons. The interesting kind of premise that she makes in the book is that even if you're not engaging in random hookups with someone, and all of the interesting nuances that occur after that between two individuals, it still impacts you and the campus at large. Um, I have had students who in my classes, this has come up and talk about how they are not a part of hookup culture. Maybe they've chosen to abstain, or they just um, maybe choose just not to randomly hook up with someone. And it impacts them significantly in their self-esteem and feeling like they don't fit in as well. And so I think that's a really big point to get across here is not everybody's hooking up with everyone all the time, but it still is impacting all of us on a college campus.
1: And I know as part of this conversation um, that you actually conducted a a survey here on campus, which I think is really important that, you know, we're looking at our own students, getting data from them, and then hopefully going to be able to create actionable items out of that. But I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about the survey. What did it look like? What kind of questions did you ask? And what were you hoping to get out of it?
2: Sure, absolutely. And, and, um, you know, John, if you want to jump in at any point.
3: I wonder if it makes sense to back up a half step to how we got to the survey, um, because you know, Dr. Jones and I have been having this conversation now for a couple of years, and and I don't remember what the article was, but something spurred me to think about this, and we and we kind of engaged in a series of emails and back and forth, and really sitting down, and that led to sort of informally pulling work study kids in, and what do you think, and what about this, and and um, and I think the more that we turned on it, the more we came to this idea of um, engaging our campus in a really specific way that better understood where our campus was coming from. And, and I'll, um, maybe Dr. Jones, you could jump in, but I think that positive, what you brought to bear uh, around this idea of how do we create, um, this positive social norming approach, but you can't do that without data, right?
2: Exactly. And so the researcher in me, um, when John and I had one of our first conversations, I was like, "All about it. Let's do let's do some research." And um, I appreciate his support in that. And so we actually did this in two phases. We started by just um, doing the research on men on campus, and that was prompted from this first discussion. He had some thoughts about like what are men going through and struggles with what does it mean to be a man and stuff today on campus surrounding this topic of sex. Um, and so we asked, um, and very similarly, these two surveys, one for the men last year, one for women this year, this spring, um, they had a lot of the same questions, but we had different elements for both of them as well. And so we, we for both of them, um, looked at questions surrounding consent and respect, um, looked at attitudes and behaviors around these things, also practicing safe sex. Um, we also looked at attitudes and behaviors around interpersonal violence. So, um, you know, health and also healthy relationships and valuing healthy relationships. For the men, we, we went a step further and asked them some qualitative open ended questions about what it means to be a man today. Um, and that was prompted a lot by John wanting to kind of probe in that area.
0: And what what does it mean to, to be a man today? What what's the answer to that?
3: Well, let me let me back up and and also reflect on some of my why in that in that conversation and, and asking some of those questions. It doesn't, in my estimation, the part of the fallout of the Me Too experience that was really shocking um, as a man for me was really understanding um, how women are experiencing day-to-day life at all ages and stages of life. And, you know, whether that's cocktail hours or dinner parties or in the office, really having this conversation. And and the more you start to probe this, the more you get at young men looking around and they're not really sure what they're supposed to be doing. And and I can, you can point to sort of generational things that have changed and, you know, the technology uh, driven culture that we live in and and sort of the devaluation or or necessity around manual labor and some of those things. And so boys are looking around saying, well, I'm not doing great in school. Um, I'm not really sure if I'm supposed to, you know, my dad doesn't lay bricks anymore, right? That was something my grandpa did. So maybe that's not really that useful. So like, where is my niche? Where's my uh, growth? I read a book about a a book called Why Boys Fail that... um, several years ago, and it sort of got me thinking around this existential crisis we have of boys in school, okay? And that's a K-12 level. But as you look here, it's the same thing is true here. Boys come in. We're far better, by the way, at CMU than most institutions in the country where we bring our incoming classes in at nearly 50-50 male to female population. By the time they graduate, we're about minus 10, Nationally, that number is climbing to like minus fifteen. Women are earning more college degrees at all levels, and the anthropological sort of consequences of that over time are serious. Right, a, a PhD um, clinical psychologist wants a mate who is going to be someone they can contend with, and so you know it's unlikely they're going to find someone who's framing houses that's going to be able to play at their level intellectually and so there are consequences as a society of, of some of these dynamics and so asking these questions well why is that happening what do boys see as their future where do boys see their strengths and so forth and then getting at what all men know which is well if we're not sure what we should be doing um, we're probably going to bow our back and you know try and figure out how to overpower it somehow right And and that is in fact what you see among college boys right they're going to sort of self-medicate through alcohol and drugs, they're probably going to shrink back in class and they're going to find other ways to try and find success. And one of those ways is sexually.
2: And I would like to add to that. I am not a man. I don't identify as one. So I can't speak to being a man, but I can speak to the research on this. Uh, and the men who have taken my classes talk about the pressures they also feel. Mm-hmm. A lot of pressure to be strong, but yet um, kind at the same time, to be a player, but also respectful of women. And it's this dichotomy between these black and white pressures that are placed on boys and men today that they speak to can be very overwhelming. And so we wonder why we have such high rates of emotional and mental health concerns with this group. Well, you're not allowed to say you're sad. You're not allowed to talk about being depressed. And so we have high rates of women being reported of as um, being diagnosed with depression and anxiety. It doesn't mean that the men aren't experiencing it. They can't ask for help. And so there's a pressure to be strong and, and, and just, you know, perfect, I think, in a lot of ways for men, too. And you can...
3: Yeah, I think that's right. And, and it, you know, we can see the, consequence, the consequences of that across a variety of different ways. The most tragic and maybe most existential is um, in suicide rates. And the largest population, obviously, is going to be in that 30 to 60-year-old white male uh, tending to be more rural. And it's it's, while we don't know causally, it, it is hard to look at the data and decouple that there's not some kind of a connection there.
0: You know, my, my first reaction is I want to ask how, what can we do? How can we make, you know, boys and men feel comfortable to open up and have these conversations and say, it's okay to, to be confused and lost and and not unsure of who you are and what you want to do. And, and you should talk about it, but I don't, I don't think you guys probably have the answer for me well, today. Well, I think it's
2: partly where we're hopefully heading, and we'll talk about that, I think, in a little bit, but starting some vulnerable conversations mm-hmm. on campus, we need to be able to be a bit more vulnerable, which in society overall, I think in America, at least, we're all scared of vulnerability to some degree, mm-hmm. but of course, boys and men are more so, uh, but it's. I would argue that being vulnerable is actually a strength. And so I think we need to reframe vulnerability as a strength to be able to get to men and boys to begin having this conversation.
0: Why, why is vulnerability scary?
3: <laughs> Do you want to answer that from
2: a male perspective?
3: Yeah, I think... Um I think that there's some deep-seated uh, challenges that men face that they're not totally clear how to channel in a positive way. Um, you know, Dr. Jones and I have really pursued this idea of where aggression fits in the male performance and psyche and so forth, right? And so, on the one hand, it's like I'm going to take my 15, 16-year-old high school boy and lift them up and say, "You are an all-conference football player as a result of your aggression." And said so that is such a great accomplishment, young man, great job. And I'm gonna take that same aggression um and as it turns itself into ugly facets, right? And sort of ostracize and, and punish. And and helping those those boys and men figure out, well, there is aggression in you. And so how do we model and channel and help you talk about and understand the appropriate role for that aggression um, to me is a really critical it's it's one discrete element of this conversation, but it is an important one. And and I think, you know, Nikki and I've talked a lot about that idea of where that fits in because it's a predecessor to sexual behavior in some ways, because aggression with men, right, can be tied uh, often to, to sexual behavior. And so as we've chatted about it. And by the way, I would say for my own um, part in this, I have had a a number of sort of vulnerable conversations with you, Dr. Jones, on this, because I think that is where we make some real progress, where you move past this kind of cartoon version of um, sexual assault on campus into something that's much more messy, much more nuanced, and much more real.
2: Yeah. And and so we're scared of that vulnerability, I think, just as a general level. I think probably men are more overall. Of course, there's always differences and stuff like that between men and women. Um, But that, that vulnerability that we have to allow ourselves to feel breeds anxiety. It breeds kind of fear that somebody's going to see the real us, Mm -hmm. I think. And speaking of the conversations you and I have had, like I've appreciated John just putting it out there, even though he may know it's not a a belief that I would value. He'll say, I'm just going to say this and he'll say it. And and. I think a part of honoring vulnerability and allowing it to exist in a space and in a conversation is coming at the other person who may have differing beliefs with just pure acceptance Mm -hmm. and open um, and honest um, communication and in a non-judgmental way. Mm -hmm. And we don't do that very well as a society.
3: Yeah. Kind of committing not to attack each other and... and Sort of asking more probing questions rather than coming to come into conclusions based on that first round. And that, that's a really hard thing to do. In, I mean, I, I think that's just a true statement. Yes. It's just a really hard thing to do.
1: Yeah. And I think to the conversation that we're having today, you, I think you both have hit on that. There's so many facets to it. It's not just one thing. There's, you know, a lot that goes into it for men, for women. And I think part of that we've talked about too, or I'd like to talk a little bit more about is just with healthy relationships. So I think, you know, for most college students, like John mentioned earlier, you're finding yourself, you're figuring out what you want to do with your life. You're meeting new people, you're exploring. I feel like a lot of different facets of yourself. Um, I know for myself personally, I met my husband at college, and Mm -hmm. you know we've been together now 15 years, and married for actually seven here coming up in a couple days. Congratulations! Thank you. Uh huh. And you know we've gone through a lot, and communication and a healthy relationship, I think, are really much tied together. So I was hoping maybe let's
3: let's let's camp on that for a quick second, Caitlin. If you think back to when you and your husband met 15 years ago. How would you rate your communication <laughs> skills with one another?
1: Not very good, I would say. 20 years old.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I would yeah. like a two. I mean, we've, you know, Dr. Jones and I have spent a lot of time talking about this, that we, this is true for every generation, but I think particularly with this generation, uh, because we've we've got all these various ways to communicate with each other, that as it turns out are not all equally effective, mm-hmm. right? So yep. texting one another is not the same thing as sitting down with a romantic partner eyeball to eyeball and and really advocating for what you are wanting and what you do not want. Whole different ball game, and so recognizing that. We've got 18, 19-year-olds coming to us, you know, in the same way I had the same experience. I think back and shudder at, you know, my ability to communicate at 19. And the truth is that that's not going to change. So the question is, and I think this is what Dr. Jones has really tried to turn on, is how do we take this research, which is really good, helpful, informing information, and do something meaningful with it? And how do we come alongside our students?
0: when these communication skills are learned. You know, we're not just born knowing how to open up and and talk about really difficult, awkward mm. conversations. And so do you have any tips, Dr. Jones, or sure. anything you can lend us
2: I'm gonna just kind of reinforce everything you all are saying because that's actually what has come through in the data as well. So people not knowing. It, what it means to be in a healthy relationship. Um, Some of the data from the women's survey that we did this year are a lot of the women asking for education on healthy relationships and warning signs and tips on how to communicate. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just important to honor that our students recognize it that they don't have these things and they want them as well. Um, And so tips for communication, I mean that's a hard one because that does it require inherent vulnerability if you're going to communicate not over text and edited and in an edited version of who we are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of the, the big ones are just like nonverbal skills, body language, stuff like that, making eye contact, um, actually squ- what we call in psychology squaring up. So facing someone um, and they also need to be facing you as well. Um, also using eye statements. I, I know that that, I don't know if everybody knows that, but it's psychologist. It's I feel like that's one of our key go-tos. Um, it's like saying, I feel like this in this moment rather than saying you, 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 right? You statements are blaming language. Somebody's going to get defensive and shut right down. I statements is really putting the blame on you. And we're more inherent um, as human beings, I guess, likely to listen if somebody is talking about themselves rather than, you know, putting us on the defense. But also just being very, very firm with boundaries. That's really important as well. And so communicating one's boundaries. And I think Mm -hmm. this is also what we believe is coming through in some of the data. The difference between the men's data and the women's data, actually, is um, this idea of consent. Okay, that is something that it it has to be communicated. And I think um, what we've found out is, in general, our students, men and women, are saying they value getting consent. And overall, they say they get consent a majority of the time from a sexual partner or a potential sexual partner. What's interesting is that I also then in the the data for the women asked them, yeah, they're saying they're getting consent at the same rate as men. It's like 99 percent of the time. You know, they're saying, yeah, we I always get consent. But the women are when I asked them a question since being at CMU, how many um, how what percentage of the time has somebody asked for consent? And they gave us 65 percent of the time since being at CMU people have actually asked for consent.
0: Well, I think that's also the challenge, right? What is consent? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, is it you stop everything you're doing and you ask? Does it mean you're taking off your your clothes? I mean, you know, what is that part of your what you guys are working on. Yeah, we've
3: we've chatted a lot about this, right? And and some of this is the difference between how men and women communicate, right? Both Nikki and I both have little boys who are about the same age. And, um, you know, you watch a little guy like that play, and they're so nonverbal, right? They're so physical and nonverbal in how they play. And there's elements of that, where they're also not as keen on picking up on body language, nuance, or nonverbal cues, as women are so much better at that, it appears, right?
2: Uh, the research backs it up. Yeah. Uh, men in general, sorry about the blanket statement, but men in general <laughs> are not good at reading nonverbals. Women are very good at reading nonverbals, and there's a whole kind of, bunch of theory behind that. I have 20 that. years
3: of self-research to back that up. <laughs>
2: okay, well, good. I'm
3: consistently not 20? good at it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the first 20, I wasn't aware, so.
2: Yeah. Um, and so it does speak to this idea of, number one, what is communication? And a lot of people think communication is just what comes out of someone's mouth, and that's actually not true. We are communicating all of the time, mm-hmm. and so when we think about this discrepancy between like um, men and women saying, "Yeah, I get consent ninety nine percent of the time," but when we really look at women, uh, what uh, what amount of time do you get consent? You know, and we have to point out not all of these women were uh, saying that they were having experiences with men. Uh, a high proportion of them identified as bisexual. So I think we need to honor that women also need to learn how to get consent as well from men as well as other women. And I want to make sure we honor that. But um, because I don't want to put all the blame on men here about um, communication as well. And so we know that it's likely men um, might think that they're getting consent because of the way someone looks at them. Um, There's actually a lot of research that shows that if a a man um, pays for the check at dinner, he actually expects he's going to have intercourse at a significantly higher rate than if a woman pays for dinner or they go Dutch. Um, And so that's a form of communication if she allows him to pay for it. And most of our research in this area are on heterosexual relationships, so we don't know what that's like in same-sex couples, so it's this notion of we need to do a better job here at CMU. I, I'm I'm very I have a lot of conviction about this. We need to teach our students healthy relationship skills, but also what does communication and consent look like?
3: Mm-hmm. And and maybe recognizing out of the data that while it the lack of communication or poor communication ha- looks very different, it's happening across the board right? It's across, it's across genders, it's across sexualities. It's, it's happening. It's sort of the one consistent item for 19 year olds. Right.
0: I think the piece that might be missing right now is accountability. And we haven't mentioned much about that, right. During this podcast, but I think it's worth mentioning that what role does accountability play in this conversation?
3: Well, and it starts with a vulnerable conversation. Absolutely. Because I, you know, one of the things that we, we find, um, is that it often doesn't look quite so clean as was there a sexual assault or was there not a sexual assault. Um, and even that language is so charged and so um, sort of fever pitch that it's it's really hard to kind of get at a more vulnerable conversation about what happened where now all of a sudden one or more parties are not happy about how this went down. and. And that's hard. That's, it sounds like a simple thing, but it really, really isn't. I mean, I, I'm just thinking about all the cases that I've seen over the years. And so few times you get these sort of really obvious cut and dry. Someone made a mistake on purpose or somebody, you know, did something worse on deliberately or something. It's almost always this just really gray and hard to get at what happened and perceptions and mixed and this and so the vulnerable element of the conversation about exactly what happened and exactly how I'm feeling about it and exactly what I communicated or didn't. And then we pour alcohol onto that scenario and it becomes really, really tough to- L-
2: Literally alcohol. Sort
3: out, literally right? alcohol. <laughs> it's not a metaphor. It's yeah. not a metaphor. I can, in, in my 12 or 13 or 14 years doing that work, I, I think I had one case that didn't involve alcohol. And so that's that's just the dynamic that is that is at play. So, um, the accountability. I wonder, Doctor Jones. You know, you've you've given a lot of thought to this, but one of the things we know about accountability is we have to start that conversation early, right?
2: Absolutely. Um, and so, once again, communication is key. You have to start the conversation early, and I think a part of accountability is having those discussions with potential sexual partners about just what it is that you are expecting and and you have to be held accountable for then if you say this is what i want then another person respecting it but i think also we go beyond this idea of just this conversation and starting the conversation and that aspect is i think everyone needs to be accountable about the role that alcohol can play on both sides in these situations, um, the hookup culture talks a lot about that book. Um, talks a lot about alcohol being the driving force for. It's like you pregame at home, then you go to the party and you get more wasted, and then that's where the situation occurs. And, and we know that alcohol is the highest risk factor for sexual assaults on college campuses. And so, having those conversations with friends, if we do choose to go and party and be more vulnerable because of. alcohol Alcohol, perhaps having one friend who's designated sober person looking out for us, Um, and I I do think that that's an important thing to think about.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've we've chatted about this idea enough, and one of our colleagues, who's a a dear friend and a sane nurse, likes to tell our um, our SART team in training, you know, her drunk no and his drunk yes are both sort of not full consent. And so this idea that we really need to be honest with each other about the choices that we're making on the front end. And as you said, what is my expectation for myself tonight? What do I want to have happen tonight? And then surrounding yourself with people to help you be accountable uh, to those choices.
1: So we've talked about, I think, quite a bit today. And as we kind of get towards the end of our time together... What's kind of next? Because this isn't obviously just happening here on CMU's campus. This is kind of a nationwide, probably global conversation that's happening or should be happening. So what do we see kind of next here for CMU?
2: Well, right now um, we're currently working on a lot of programming in this area. So we got this data, some really rich data from over 1,200 students on campus, filled out the survey, and um, they're clearly indicating that they have a need. Um, And so we have decided to start um, really actively working to do regular programming on campus. Every month next year, we're going to be doing some sort of sexuality programming. Some of the broad areas we'll be covering um, are things like uh, you know, consent, bystander intervention. So, helping someone if you do see they are in need, but also things like what is a healthy relationship, warning signs to health, um, unhealthy relationships. We're also going to be talking about this, and it's a very vulnerable conversation. Um, sexual intentions. Um, what are people's intentions surrounding their sexuality? Because people need to start understanding why it is that they are engaging in the behaviors they are. So, ultimately that leads to this idea of that our students coming in, this is a nationwide issue, around 30% of students or so come in with a a formal sex education um, that's comprehensive. So our students are coming in to campus and And some of them may have never even learned about an STD or an STI um, and don't know about contraception and stuff like that at a minimum, let alone all these other things that surround this idea of healthy and positive sexuality. So my goal, I don't know if it's John's goal, he's probably got his own for um, campus in his new role. My goal is to change, one, the discussion to be more of a sex positive discussion, meaning um, let's let's educate, that's a part of sex positivity. Let's talk about people's intentions, let's educate around boundaries and relationships and how to communicate so a person has agency in deciding what they want to do, being able able to communicate that with someone else. And they can protect themselves if they do choose to be a part um, of hookup culture or having a, a sexual relationship with a partner and just understanding that. And it starts by kind of having the conversation and education from my perspective.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that idea of agency and accountability hit home for me. To me, the you know markers of a college campus ought to be where we're really challenging ourselves to think critically um, and to be accountable for our words and our behaviors. And and so much of what we're trying to do is empower students uh, with this idea of agency and self-advocacy. And, and this is kind of ground zero in terms of um, where these consequences can be so dire when they don't. And so it's, a, it's just a really great opportunity for us to challenge our students to say, yes, we as a university, we owe it to you to give you all these resources, to give you the education, but... Um, and frankly, to set a culture on this campus where we all know what to expect of one another, um, that we're gonna get treated with civility and respect, that we're gonna be empowered as humans and seen as individuals and, and respected, even if we may disagree or take a stance that isn't popular. Um, that might be a political stance, it might be not participating in hookup culture. And so this idea of really um, respecting one another in a real significant, um, meaningful way and and then just extending that agency and accountability.
2: And I would like to add to that, like this idea of being good citizens at CMU, hmm. I think in regard to this specific area really needs to occur. So we know about a third of sexual assaults um, can be prevented by bystanders in general. So somebody who is seeing what's happening at a party and recognizing the warning signs that something's not okay and stepping in and doing something about it. And I actually used that kind of to kick off some of the data for the women that was different. And it came came out of a conversation between John and I and that, from his perspective as a man, he thought women wouldn't want a man to intervene in these situations, and so I just I got I my, asked
3: it in the phrase of a question.
2: I got it, my academic hat <laughs> on, and I was like, "I'm going to ask." And there's a whole host. I mean, that comes up. I've yeah. had men in my classes say, "Well, I wouldn't intervene because I don't want her to, th- you know, think I'm hitting on her," and then it caused a whole nother issue. So we asked the women, "Would you want somebody to intervene if you were in a situation that was dangerous, uh, sexually, physically, all of these?" And by far sexual dangerous situations, 98% of them said absolutely, and they did not care about the gender. They they it just wanted somebody to do the right thing, and and they gave a whole host of reasons why. And I don't think we are doing enough of looking out for other individuals in our country in general, but just even on college campuses. And we need to have more agency in that way, that we have to be good humans and, and care about other individuals. Yeah,
3: just being in community with each other where I know your name, you know mine. And if you're in a tight spot, I'm going to step in.
2: Which is a bit problematic. And and that has led to a couple of difficult conversations, I think, between John and I, too, on, um, well, if you're a man and you step in where you see something happening, potentially dangerous.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's probably going to be a conflict, right?
2: Right.
0: Yeah. And if it's your friend or someone you know, It gets even more complicated, I think.
2: And and it's hard for me to understand why, and I'm not a man, once again, but it's hard for me to understand why if I see a friend potentially doing something that's going to put him in jail... Mm-hmm. Um, why I wouldn't step in and say, hey, you know, this, I'm stepping in for you, let's even say. If you had to frame it that way, I'm stepping in to protect you from an accusation here rather than not doing something. I just don't understand that, but perhaps that's a difference, a fundamental difference between men and women.
3: Yeah, and it, I think it drives back to this idea of pushing ourselves to get clear about our sexual intentions and just our, our more broad intentions. What is my hope? Uh, by going to the basement of a house party and drinking eight beers? What do I want to occur at that point? And, um, you know, of course, that's, yeah, that's a, a whole
1: uh, nother conversation.
3: That's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thank you both for doing the important work to make campus better. You're obviously being really proactive about it. So we appreciate that. And you being here today to, to talk about it.
3: Yeah, such a pleasure. Yeah, thank you again
0: for having us. Thank you for joining the CMU Now Special Edition podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, you can listen to others on the CMU Now website or on Spotify.